Internet, and welcome to another exciting panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis, and just a couple quick words before we get started with our panel. This month, we're talking about Nintendo, and that's a company that's practically a fifth food group to an entire generation of kids. If you're interested in learning more about the love of Nintendo and these old retro games, I'd recommend the documentary King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. This is a mind-blowingly awesome documentary about the Donkey Kong World Championships and a heated battle for the world record. Now, this sounds like something you might not be interested in, but I guarantee you you're wrong. This is a hilarious, compelling, and often heartbreaking movie that is practically a non-fiction version of The Karate Kid or a 1980s sports movie. It's got a lovable Charlie Brown-type underdog taking on a champ that is so unlikable he might as well be a Game of Thrones character. Also, We want to thank the people who are continuing to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes and the Stitcher app. This is literally the best thing you can do to help grow our audience. Those reviews help put this show in front of more listeners, and we hope you'll just take a second and let the internet know that you like what we do. And with that said, on with the show. Nintendo. It was probably the first Japanese word I learned. Okay, maybe ninja was the first word. To many of the kids growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was not only their introduction to Japanese culture, but to video game culture. Their flagship home console, the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the Famicom in Japan, was an epoch for video gaming. A reversal of Commodore Perry's breaking open of Japan. The NES arrived from the Pacific Ocean, anchored its armada off the West Coast, and launched an opening salvo of wonder and imagination at a generation of American children and in doing so, ushered in a new dimension for video gaming, the ripples of which are still being felt 30 years later. Its very name would become synonymous with video games. Until the US release of the NES, I didn't know what Nintendo was. Even though I was obsessed with video games from a very young age, I remember playing our Pong home console at the age of three. It was only after catching the briefest glimpse, maybe 10 seconds, standing in the front doorway of my brother's friend's house, I saw little Mario jumping across oddly colored platforms and trying to navigate those scales of Lady Justice platforms. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, worlds beyond my old Atari 2600. It wasn't until Christmas 1987 that I was given an NES and the timeless Konami jungle shooter Contra, and shortly thereafter, VHS rental stores started offering NES games for rent, and even for a poor kid growing up in rural Oregon, opened up a universe of fascinating and sometimes frustrating game worlds. I would call my experience growing up with Nintendo transcendent, and some people might think such an admission would be silly, but it excited my imagination in ways that it's difficult to calculate. And I would be willing to bet that millions of other kids, some of who went on to make video games, make movies, music, create amazing stuff on the internet, would say they shared the same feeling. And maybe I'm right, because all told, the NES would sell over 60 million consoles. By 1990, 30% of American households owned a Nintendo. It is estimated that nearly half a billion NES games were sold over its decade-long lifespan. 
The success of the NES would dispel America's skepticism about it being just a fad or a toy, and what followed was merchandising of every stripe and color, breakfast cereals, Saturday morning cartoons, and even several Hollywood films. May Bob Hoskins rest in peace. Nintendo would continue releasing new consoles over the next three decades, more often keeping pace with innovation rather than setting it. Outliving the implosion of Sega's hardware business and the jumping into the market of two huge tech companies, Sony and Microsoft, Nintendo has weathered many storms, securing its legacy as a vibrant and inventive juggernaut, forever preserving our childhoods, and perhaps most importantly, continuing to bring that magic to today's kids. And that enduring legacy is the topic for this month's panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Joining us for this discussion is our special guest, host of the Retronauts podcast, regular contributor to usgamer.net, Bob Mackey. Thanks for being here, Bob. Thank you for having me. Also returning is friend of the show, producer and host of the Ask an Atheist radio show, and shameless Sega apologist, <laughs> Sam Mulvey. Hi, Sam. How you doing? I always like the combination of video games and history. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice Admiral Perry. Uh, Thanks. Thanks. There. And lastly, my co-host for Radio vs. the Martians, Luigi to my Mario, Rush to my Mega Man, Lance Bean to my Bill Reiser, Mike Gillis. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Hi. I almost got that. Okay, blow the dust off that cartridge, jam it into that control deck, and punch the power button. We're booting up a wild adventure into the game grid of your childhood on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Bob, you've made your living writing and talking about video games. Why is Nintendo important? Isn't it just a distraction, a kitty toy, a nefarious ploy for Japan to take us over, or maybe it's just a complete waste of time? Those are all lies. <laughs> really, the reason it's important uh, historically is that it sort of revived console gaming in the United States after the video game crash of around 80, 83, 84. There was no quality check on games. Anyone could just make a game, period. And, and there was nothing there to back it up. You know, it could just be broken or horrible or, you know, barely functional. But Nintendo kind of came out as a toy in 1985, in America at least, to sort of earn video games reputation back. Mike, you and I have discussed video games many times, but never on a panel. Why do you think Nintendo is important to gaming? I think that for most of us here in our generation, Nintendo meant video games. It was Japanese for video games for most of our lives. And you mentioned that synonymous nature that it was like Kleenex or Band-Aid or Coke in some parts of the country. You played and rented Nintendo games. You didn't rent video games. You went to the store to rent Nintendo games. And it's crazy because it's not like there weren't video games before Nintendo, right? Oh, no. I think you said Atari before then, but it never had that same synonymous nature. I mean, Nintendo was video games. And something that, Sam, you said on our last episode, you talked a bit about how Gene Simmons had talked at one point about the end of the rock star. Right. That there was this one star, like the Beatles or Kiss or anyone, that everybody knew, everybody bought, everybody listened to, and how that was changing about music. And I think that Nintendo was the rock star of the 80s and 90s. They put out consoles that everybody owned. You might know a couple people who had a Sega, but you knew everybody by default had an NES or an SNES. This was a shared experience that everybody had. There was nobody who didn't have Nintendo, who didn't share a Nintendo, who hadn't played a Mario or Zelda game. I can't think of any video game company, even now where gaming is just so ubiquitous, that has that nature. I think that Nintendo ruled video games for like 20 years. Sam, I think we might need to stop the discussion right here and give you one last chance to renounce Sega and pledge your <laughs> devotion to Nintendo on the altar of St. Miyamoto. Not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. I have to admit. But why Nintendo at all? This is my question to you. Why not just a Sega or a DOS machine with a VGA card and a Sound Blaster slash AdLib compatible sound card? <laughs> right? 
I feel like I'm kind of here as sort of a wrestling villain, in a way. <laughs> you are the heel. I am the heel. I'm here to get the face over, right? I had a Nintendo. I played a lot of Nintendo. I'm a slavish fan of the Mario games. But when we start talking about Nintendo as a wider phenomenon, I think it misses way more than it hits. I think Nintendo is Nintendo, not so much because of its business practices, which were draconian in nature, hmm. but because of very specific people involved. Basically, Miyamoto. Did off. He's the Rod Serling of game designers. Basically. Yeah. You know, we were saying before that you opened up this conversation, are video games a waste of time? Are they horrible? Blah, blah, blah. I would say yes to all of those things, but I just don't have a problem with things being a waste of time. Mm. I mean, anything that isn't involved with the consumption of food or procreation <laughs> is in some way a waste of time. But that doesn't mean it's not without artistic merit. And sure. you said there was no quality control on video games. And that's true to a certain extent. And what's going on there is the quality control for video games in the very early days was the ability to program a video game, which was no small feat. I mean, it didn't get too much easier by the time of the Nintendo, but the one business practice that Nintendo had that made sense, in among all the horrible draconian shit, was that the games actually had to have, like, they had to be games, essentially. Right. You're not going to get Night Stalker for the Intellivision again. <laughs> <laughs> and people loved that game, but the only thing that was cool about it was the noise it made. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> I want to kick this off by sort of talking about why Nintendo might be different than we might remember it differently from something else. Mike and I talk a lot on this podcast, and forgive the pun, about the importance of being earnest with nerd culture. And we know that fans can get belligerent, and they often forget sort of the quirky, the weird, the whimsical. And sometimes that devotion to purity in our culture is overwhelming. We know Batman has to be dark and violent. First-person shooters have to all be like Call of Duty in some respect. Every video game needs voice acting with Hollywood-like cinematics. Nintendo games, while they generally cater to a kid-friendly audience, they have freedom to do fun things, and their characters are all in a singular, strange, amorphous universe where anything can be. Nintendo seems to have preserved this childish whimsy, child, but my question is, can it last? I'm not really sure what you mean by that. I mean, the characters are still there. They still make Mario and Link games. Those characters still have value as merchandise. I mean, people want to wear t-shirts that has the Triforce logo on it or Mario on it. They still want to play a game with Mario in it, whether he's playing tennis or in a go-kart race or practicing medicine. <laughs> it's a character that we all enjoy or refereeing a boxing game. Right. I think there's some kind of cipher to him that he's sort of there and you can sort of project personality onto him. But he's just a guy who's going on an adventure in a mushroom kingdom to fight a giant turtle dinosaur and maybe stomp on a mushroom or two to save the princess of the mushroom kingdom. There's something weird and interesting about it. And the more you think about it as an adult and you can just enjoy the weird grandeur of it, the idea of this absurd notion of a plumber fighting a dinosaur turtle monster to save the day, it's weird and it's fun and it's insane and it only becomes more so when you try looking at it as an adult but again it isn't asking you to look at this 20 minute animation sequence before you start playing the game mm. it just throws you in and says this weirdness is enough bob what do you think i mean can the nintendo formula endure I mean, I really think so because their formula exists outside of the realm of video games because they are primarily toy makers. And if you look at some oh. of their most recent products, that kind of reflects their history. Like Rusty's Real Deal Baseball for the 3DS is basically just a toy, like a handheld toy. So I think as long as they can continue to carry that aesthetic forward, they will never be you know, out of date. 
because I think their games have really aged the best because they have that kind of toy maker's aesthetic to them. Huh. And toy maker sense of design rather than, you know, an engineer or a programmer or something. There's a real sense of like whimsy and toyness to everything they do. Hmm. I think there's an approachability to it as well. I think that you just throw somebody into this situation. And I think that when we see the addition of Sony and Microsoft, that there's more of a traditional gamers market that they're going towards. I think maybe Nintendo has a casual market. I think you guys are kind of saying two different things here. And this is where I stop playing the heel and and I actually bring some realness (laughs) in is I think... On one axis, we talk about the 8-bit era of the video game. You know, the right. NES, where Nintendo was king. Don't forget the Sega Master System, Sam. Yeah, I, I have one. Yeah. <laughs> I play Alex Kidd. You know, that is history. There will be people playing Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda a hundred years from now. I will put money down on that. You mean the radioactive cockroaches are going yes, to be playing? Yes, the radioactive Sweet. cockroaches. Yeah, M- Mr. Samsa will be playing. <laughs> but when we talk about Nintendo as an entity, as a persevering entity, I actually think that day that you guys are talking about is kind of already past. Hmm. I think Nintendo... I've played a lot of their most recent stuff. I mean, it's all the same stuff. It's the same IP over and over and over again. It feels less revolutionary than evolutionary. They become less and less weird. The things that we liked about Nintendo, you put the cartridge in, you you, got to turn it down a couple of times because of horrible copy protection. Blow on it, try it again. Uh, Eventually you get it go. But after you get the solid red light, you are playing a video game inside of 15 seconds. Nintendo doesn't do that anymore, except maybe on the 3DS, but not even then, because you have to go through all these little bit of Facebooky things and I think the revolutionary thing that Nintendo really brought to the table with those 8-bit games is kind of over because you said, Mike, that everybody had a Nintendo. Maybe a lot of people have a Wii. Who plays it? And I'll follow that up with another question. Who plays a Wii? Who has a Wii U? I think there's only one person on this panel that does, Bob. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Yeah. You guys are already trespassing in one of my later questions, which is, does this spell trouble? I mean, you sound like you're a Nintendo doomsayer. There is no shortage of people on the internet who are Nintendo doomsayers yeah. when it comes to the console. I'm not happy about it. I don't know. I wouldn't say you were happy <laughs> yeah, about it. Okay. You're not really the heel. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> right. I mean, tell us about the experience of what the Wii U is, Bob. Is the value proposition, do you think, still fertile enough for us old gamers or new gamers? I mean, like, I feel like it appeals to my demographic, which is a very strange and not ordinary demographic. My needs are different than the average gamers, I think. But for me, I like it. I mean, it's better than the GameCube. I mean, people are making a lot of comparisons like that, but I feel like it already has a much stronger library in two years than the GameCube had in like five or six. So obviously the third party support isn't there, but I think that if you buy a Nintendo system now, you sort of know what you're getting. That's basically all there is to it, really. And it's, it's disappointing that my standards are that low, but I kind of like know what I'm getting when I get a Nintendo system now. Sometimes, I mean, I'm not saying that this is you, Bob, but sometimes it does feel like with some of these things, it's a bit of Stockholm Syndrome, which we talk a lot about the fanboy Stockholm Syndrome, where you seem level-headed, but sometimes people don't know when it's over. You're right. I don't want that to be the case. I'm just wondering, yeah. just questioning aloud whether or not that's the well, case. Well, the nice thing about corporations is that eventually people die and new <laughs> people come into place. And Nintendo is in a unique position to come back and say, OK, we've been on the wrong track. No, they are doing that right now. And that's scary. But we'll talk about that later. But they're going out of the wrong track and into the lava pit in World 1-4. Let's save that discussion okay. for a little bit later because I want to get to that down the road. I can talk a little bit about the change that we have from the current day where you know what you're getting from Nintendo versus what you were getting from Nintendo back in the 1980s. Please. 
when the 1980s, you got everything. Right, that's true. Every licensed game that came out, you'd be crazy not to put it on the Nintendo because that's the one that everyone had. Unless you were playing Sonic the Hedgehog or Alex Kidd. That's a bugbear of mine, but I'll hold back for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) It was painful because I loved the Sega 2. You know, I love my Genesis. It was a great game system. Did you love, love your Genesis? In shameful ways. (laughs) I thought it was a great game system, but I knew that there were certain games that I was never going to get Are you suggesting you had a greasy composite out? (laughs) (laughs) No comment. Okay. In a similar vein to the late night wars of the 1990s, between Leto and Letterman, you know, people would only appear on one. And there were several things where you could play hardball, or at least Nintendo could afford to, to say, I want exclusive for Nintendo for this game. And of course you're going to sign up with that. That's the big system. So a lot of smaller guys get shut out. During that era, if you wanted the biggest games, if you wanted Mega Man, if you wanted not just the classic Nintendo characters like Metroid, Super Mario Brothers, Legend of Zelda, we're talking about every game that came out. It was coming out on the Nintendo Entertainment System or the SNES. And you knew that if it didn't come out on there right away, it would eventually come out because the demand would be there. No video game company would want to slam the door in Nintendo's face. But something happened later on where I can't say that anymore. I think they just stopped investing in having the most powerful hardware or a home console that could compete hardware-wise with its competitors. Well, I think of the games that I get really excited about nowadays, things like Bioshock, Grand Theft Auto V, Red Dead Redemption, a Bethesda game like Skyrim. Right. That's not going to come out on a Nintendo system anymore. There was a time where it would have only come out on Nintendo, and Nintendo would have found a way to accommodate these games as well as the games that have a much more casual fan base behind them. Where that monopoly isn't there, it seems like that battle's being fought between Sony and Microsoft, the battle that used to be fought between Sega and Nintendo. Nintendo seems to be in a completely different category nowadays. Mm. It's aiming Mm -hmm. at a completely different fan, at a different marketplace, at a different demographic than what we see happening, what we call today the traditional gamer happening between the Xbox and the PlayStation. It's amazing because it's a very different thing. Those two systems have very similar games and they battle over who can do that game better, while Nintendo is playing a completely different game altogether. Right. Right now, I argue that Mario as a character is more recognizable to this generation than Mickey Mouse. And I think this right here might be one of the ways that Nintendo excels. And of course, certainly Mario existed prior to Super Mario Brothers, but I think I see Mario as sort of representative of Nintendo's legacy. Maybe there's some nostalgia around the hardware, but around this concept of taking a new medium and creating mascots, an ensemble of characters that are sort of distinctive and recognizable, even if they're only a tiny clump of pixels on an interlaced standard definition I don't pay attention screen. to like modern day Nintendo quite as much, but Bob, I kind of assume that you do. I wonder at that, is Mario more recognizable than Mickey Mouse at this point? Well, I mean, I think that was the thing you heard a lot when I was growing up in the 80s and then in the early 90s. They would throw that idea around a lot that Mario, and I would not be surprised because Mickey Mouse is more of like a brand image than it is a thing that you really interact with and play with. Like, right. I can see maybe other uh, Disney characters, but Mickey Mouse, they kind of keep him just like boring on purpose because he's just um, their icon. Okay, well, yeah, and at this point, I mean, Mickey Mouse is basically the test platform for extending the length before right. length of time before things become public domain. <laughs> right. That's yeah, its to, only uh, purpose. Yeah, yeah. copyright law. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, th- I think this is important because there's been some things where I've considered to have sort of inexplicable success in the, the realm of the video games. One of them, I would say, is Angry Birds, which is one of these things where and maybe this is a generation gap problem. So, I mean, I've been playing video games consistently since I was very small. I can understand the appeal to what 
what Angry Birds is, but I've played a dozen Flash games prior to them releasing this game that were precisely the same thing, right? This was not gameplay that was revolutionary. What I think ended up standing out, maybe it was the platform that it was on, but these characters, those weird little birds with the V-shaped brows. They kind of look like Eugene Levy. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was the characters themselves that stood out and therefore gave them the recognition that could have them leap out of the game and into real life. And I would say that that's using the Nintendo formula that says the gameplay at this point in time doesn't have to be unique because most things are recycled. But having a character that endures is the thing that will give you the meteoric rise. Has the video game mind really run dry? Are we really at the there is nothing new under the sun phase of video gaming at this point? I'll just be some kind of hipster partisan or something and (laughs) just say that Minecraft, I can be optimistic about video games because something like Minecraft exists. Right. Although that's the sort of thing that has to drag the major gaming systems kicking and screaming to support it, right? Yeah. Has to be incubated elsewhere. But I don't know. You tell me. Has there been anything maybe after Grand Theft Auto created this open world game that we now see everywhere? Has there been anything else that tickles your fancy that is new, that you feel is new? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> well, I really feel like the last new genre was the music or like the refining of the rhythm genre into the plastic instrument genre, but that didn't last very long. I feel like that was the last <laughs> moment of mass relevancy for video games. I think there's sort of a mass relevancy for video games right now, not in the style of play. And this may be a testament to the social perseverance of the 8-bit era. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at video games like Minecraft, which, okay, yeah, you can call it hipster, but how many Minecraft t-shirts do I have? Right. How many stuffed creepers do I have downstairs? I don't know. <laughs> but then FTL and... Papers, please. And, Papers, yeah. please. And, I mean, there's a revolution in people making video games in indie game development, which has smaller development teams and aren't being made like multi-million dollar movies. And as a result, tend to have gameplay that looks a lot closer right. to, you know, is like, I think part of the reason maybe Nintendo was Nintendo when Nintendo was Nintendo that was a sentence really <laughs> is, Buffalo, Buffalo 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 yeah is because of the kind of canvas the 8-bit era provided it was art through limitation where now you can make a video game that's basically anything I mean we're on the precipice of the Oculus Rift here eventually right I mean we just saw Kevin Spacey mocap right for Call of Duty <laughs> wait Who cares? what <laughs> what you might say that, but I can't possibly comment. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, who, on on what? Uh, you could explain it better than I did. I just saw it and I threw my hands well, up. Well, the new Call of Duty trailer has a CGI Kevin Spacey as the villain, I, I guess. I, all credit to him for trying anything, because that dude will try anything. But really, Call of Duty, you can aim so much higher than... It y- is a huge franchise. It is. I guess I could say Call of Duty is essentially the Fast and the Furious of video games, where yes. it comes out with a new version... <laughs> are equally horrible (laughs) they have a new one every year it does exactly what the people who buy it want it to do and it just changes up or tweaks up the knob just a little bit more every time they put a new one out alternatively like the forza video games and the gran turismo video games which are basically the same video game they just update the the models madden (laughs) madden that too but i don't like madden but i do like forza and gran turismo i like those games i like racing games they're relaxing to me that's why I think that it isn't necessary that we have to invent whole new genres every time that something comes out. Just because something is new doesn't necessarily mean it has value. There is still value in old things done really, really well. And I know something that Paul Rue and I talk a lot about on Mike and Paul Save the Universe 
not everything has to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes you can just make a damn good wheel. You don't have to make a whole new system of games. You can do a platformer again, but make it really, really fucking good. It's so interesting that you're bringing this up. This segues right into my next question, which is sort of about the Nintendo nostalgia retro 8-bit, whatever you want to call it, both as sort of an aesthetic category, but also a gameplay category that we're seeing in things like Spelunky or platformers that clearly have borrowed whole cloth from old Nintendo games. But I find this ironic because right now, as Nintendo as a console maker, maybe you can speak to this better, Bob, Nintendo seems to be the least interested in supporting indie development. In fact, they could be said to be downright hostile to people making smaller games. That's true. I mean, they're a very conservative company because they operate by different values. That leads to some strengths and and weaknesses. And, you know, trying new things is not one of their strengths. Definitely. (laughs) I mean, they do try new things and they're always surprising, but they're not always the most technologically advanced. I find that kind of interesting that they don't have a system that can seem to carry things like the new Call of Duty and they don't seem to be interested in carrying it. It almost seems like they've turned their back on the video gamers that they made their bread on. No, they've turned their back on dude bro gamers. Am I a dude bro gamer? (laughs) Dude. The things that they're not selling, the things that are selling the most, Call of Duty, Skyrim, Grand Theft Auto, Halo, they're not selling those because the shooter genre, that's primarily dude bro. But that's not in the indie game development stuff. Right. You know, why can't they carry Kerbal Space Program? They, They could, I suppose, if they wanted to. I wanted to say he he had a point here about the conservancy of of Nintendo, how conservative an organization is. And I think that's one of its biggest flaws. And that's been one of the biggest problems that it faces is that it doesn't want to do new things when it was forced to do new things in the 80s. I almost want to say that Nintendo's success isn't its fault. (laughs) Well, they became successful in a very turbulent time, and they developed a very overly conservative approach to home consoles because there was just some downright buffoonery in the 80s of all these console makers, so many of them flooding the market, so many unlicensed games. These were things that they knew they needed to do because of how foolhardy people were being with their consoles. And so it led them to, you know, have only five games a year for third-party publishers. But my point here is that conservative values thing killed them in a way because they wanted to control the pipeline of development so hard. They wanted draconian control over everything that they passed up the opportunity. They basically gave away the generation that had the N64 in it to the PlayStation because they wanted so much control over the fabrication channel for the media, for the video games, for the controllers. They weren't ready to play in a multi-party market like we've got today. And as a result, nobody had an N64, which sucked because that was actually a fairly good system. Right. I wonder if it's a bit of a Casey at the bat thing, that there was overconfidence coming out of the fact that... Not you, Casey. I'm talking about the famous poetic Casey at the bat. Right. We're talking about some overconfidence leading to failure. And I think that they sat on top of the heap for so long with damn near a monopoly that I have to wonder if it became impossible for them to imagine that they could fail. That's not unique. I mean, Sony, PS2, they own the world. PS3, for the first three or four years, they were losing everything. So I think that overconfidence is a common story in gaming. It might even be a common story just for large multinational capitalist companies. I mean, because that was the the reason why IBM failed, right? Also, empires. And and, and (laughs) empires, sure. Sure. Listen, all I know know are video games, so that's all I can tell you. (laughs) 
Well, let's remember fondly and be optimistic phase about how we're talking about Nintendo. And one of the things that I think that's clearly their strength is this idea of the franchises that they own. And I've heard this criticism before. Some people say (laughs) Nintendo should make new characters instead of recycling old ones. And I think that at least the last great new franchise that I played in was supremely impressed with was the Pikmin series. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's still really good. It's great. Still playing. And was that the last unique IP for Nintendo that they did? It depends. I mean, you can, you can count like Nintendogs as uh-huh. newer IP. You can count Rusty's Real Deal Baseball, things like that. But I mean, oh, yes. taken, taken I didn't... seriously, oh, my God. I, I think that is the real last IP. That is so interesting. I was bringing this up for a completely different point, And these two guys in the room here, Bob, don't know about this. I had this big spiel about, so Nintendo has basically said, we're really not going to cave into pressure from investors or from people in the industry and put Super Mario on mobile phones. You know, they're going to be like, we have our own consoles. We have our own handheld consoles. We don't care about your mobile revenue models, right? And they really haven't done much with DLC, which is both a boon and a curse for video gaming right now in the way that monetization is starting to kill the the nickel and diming of the gamer is killing them. Yeah. Rusty's Real Deal Baseball is basically a free-to-play game, but it's very interesting Satoru Iwata said that with DLC, they were going to be very, very cautious because, quote, it might be good for short-term profit, but it would not serve our mid-term and long-term business developments. So this is one way in which I think the conservatism of Nintendo's business model might be actually producing a better experience for the consumers. Rusty's Real Deal Baseball is free to play. It's a baseball game that's basically a collection of mini games, and you have the option to pay for with real dollars the rest of the mini games. But you could also haggle the price of each mini game down, and there's actually a lifetime maximum to buy the game for basically 40 bucks. So essentially, they've taken a free to play model. You can download it, play it if you like it. You can haggle down the cost of each little mini game, and you're never going to pay any more than you would for a regular 3DS game. That sounds amazing. That does not sound conservative to me. I think it is in the fact that they waited years to do a free-to-play thing just to see what people did not like. And then the narrative device has so much detail into it just so you can give it money. Other, you know, games would just be like, hey, give us money. But there's like a story involved. There's characters. There's coupons. There's haggling. There's like a really involved system involved in actually spending your money. So I think holding back for that long, let them see what people did not like about free-to-play and deliver something completely different. And this is, I think this wait and see approach is something that you could even see with their hesitancy to start development on the Super Nintendo, which they didn't until very late, until 1988. Yeah. Even though their market was being eaten up by the Genesis and the TurboGrafx-16. But I think this is pretty standard for the Nintendo-Sega dynamic for many years, is that Sega would come out with this brand new crazy thing, and then Nintendo would wait a year, and then they would completely flatten them. Because it felt a bit like mm. Sega became the perpetual canary in a coal mine. I thought it was just Sega was, they weren't being flattened by sort of Nintendo's innovation. Sega was just, they were killing themselves. At least in the US. I mean, the world video game market in the console era was really strange. Right. I mean, people still play Master System in South America. You can still buy a Master System in South America. I don't know why you would, but you can. <laughs> They're still <laughs> making games for Master System. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that sounds great. <laughs> the funny thing with the Sega is I like Sega. I do, and I was a fan of Sega and a defender of the Genesis, and I didn't get an (laughs) SNES. That sounds so noble, a defender of Genesis. Actually, Mike being in favor of Genesis in any way is weird to me. (laughs) I had a Genesis. I loved Toe Jam and Earl. I loved Altered Beast. I loved these games. It was a couple years before I got an SNES of my own. Everyone else was already playing Link to the Past, and I was kind of standing there drooling. And here's the thing. The way I look at these two companies, I see them much like Coke and Pepsi, McDonald's and Burger King. 
one of these two companies is clearly much more powerful and popular and influential than the other. I actually like the more popular product. I liked the Nintendo SNES better than I liked the Sega Genesis. But I like the company of Sega a little bit better because it felt like they would try crazy things. This is a point I really wanted to make to you guys and sort of get your take on this is for what video game system was Metal Gear for? The MGM... The MSX. MSX, MSX yeah. yeah. Yeah, it wasn't the NES, because the NES for a while was... I mean, we could have this dick measuring contest about all sorts of things, and the answer for a lot of them can be PC. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, it really can't. It really can't in the case of Nintendo, is because yeah. Nintendo actually sought that out. Nintendo That's was, true. You couldn't do it with the PC, where it makes the most sense is in is in sports. Is in, and I'm sorry to You're bring You're basically up, saying that Nintendo is the New York Yankees? The, <laughs> Nintendo was the New York Yankees. If you had some success, Nintendo would mothership over your company, Independence Day style, suck up all your good IP, and then explode your platform. I mean, that happened. The MSX is a, is a great example. That was hmm. a great system. Hmm. Never that- had one, because could never get one. And that's why you would buy the Nintendo systems, because they had everything. And it always felt a bit like if there was a draft, the way that sports do, getting back to analogies that I don't understand, it felt like Sega slept in a little bit. And they're like, shit, shit, who's left? Who's left? Uh, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, (laughs) I would not agree with that until the Saturn era. The Saturn Hmm. was just a piece of junk. Hmm. It's so weird because I look at the way that these game systems evolved, and I think that a lot of us come down to simply being... I guess we could say we're loyal to the brand of Nintendo, but we're also loyal to certain video game brands. I think it was around the era of PlayStation 1 that I finally jumped ship. But it was Final Fantasy going over to another system and Nintendo losing it that made me jump ship as a Nintendo enthusiast. That was huge, actually. That was an enormous fissure. Sony beating Nintendo out of the gate for a 3D-centered system by two years. I would say that they, aside from their brief comeback with the Wii, they never got it out of the gate from there. But let's set aside the failures for a moment. I want to talk about innovation. Because, of course, you know, when they brought Nintendo to America, they changed things about it from the Famicom. One of the things that they were very worried about was that people would see it as a video game system. And the retailers and also the consumers would look, oh, those terrible video game systems that they made too many of them and they all died. Like, I'm not going to buy this if this system's going to fail. That's why Rob the Robot came around and the NES Zapper. They could bundle with the system and say, oh, it's not just a video game. It's a toy also. You know, they could do that as well. Nintendo had been at least and still is, I think trying to sort of capture peripherals as well as new modes of using other things with their gaming to make new experiences. And we would certainly be negligent to fail to mention the fact that Nintendo has so much cash and is still a huge player because of their handheld market. Oh, God, they dominate that market. There is no one who comes close to Nintendo (laughs) from Game Boy on. I mean, I can't even name what the alternative system is to the DS. Yes, you can. Can I? It's the iPhone. Oh. Or it's a Vita. I that mean, one yeah. said the Vita. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't right. know the Vita. I mean, I think I remember the name now. It's like it's coming back to me like <laughs> a repressed memory. I heard it once on the internet, but if I see a it's handheld real. System, It's real. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought I was crazy. Well, you know, Nintendo held profitability when its consoles were playing second and third fiddle to Microsoft and Sony. I want to talk for a moment, because I know all of you probably have a favorite, about what your favorite failed bleeding edge tech innovation was. 
I'm going to say the virtual boy. Damn it. Oh. That was mine. Everyone loves the virtual I boy. I love the idea of the virtual boy far better than its execution. I loved it. I had one. I bought it for $6 from Toys R Us. <laughs> fire sale Nintendo You consoles. strap it to your head and it's like, this is virtual reality. <laughs> I remember seeing one at the Incredible Universe Superstore. And of course, the minute you strap it on, you see the first problem, which is that it's all red. And you're like, oh, I'm playing Seizure Simulator. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, the, I think the first problem that you notice is the blood's being cut off to the rest of your body because of the awkward angle. You have to hold yourself to play it. Yeah, it, that thing really needed a head strap. But I like the idea of that multi-level video game experience. I mean, yeah, it's 2D, but it's a 3D 2D. I found the perfect way to play the Virtual Boy. You have to have an enormous head, so you're in luck. (laughs) (laughs) I had a cot, and I would lie down on my bed, and I would connect (laughs) the uh, thing to it. And then I would just lay down and put it on my head so that it was gravity-fed to my face. I was getting gravity-fed video games. And I got it when everybody said it was a horrible failure. Everybody who involved with the creation of that video game has been shot into the sun. We're never doing that again. I feel like they were too embarrassed to admit that it didn't work. So they just all pretended that it did and then released it. <laughs> <laughs> they knew what was going to happen. They had too much pride. Yeah. I mean, the Virtual Boy really was kind of Nintendo's Apple TV, in a way. Oh, oh. And, but it was more I, their Newton, I their think. Their Newton, yeah. Or their Pippin. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Even yeah. Better. But I, I got it on a fire sale, and I loved it. I loved it so much, I bought import games. I actually ordered games from overseas to play on it. And I got one for my brother, too. And he still plays his. If you don't immediately die from a seizure. <laughs> and if you're not under seven. And if you're not under seven, you're going to love because it. Because you will go blind, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would say that the Virtual Boy, I think, is going to be everyone's default favorite. I felt like perhaps the biggest affront to to Nintendo accessories was the exercise pad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I know why they... Cheating simulator. It's <laughs> And it was because it was so easily circumvented. Sort of like the way that the Wiimote was, seemed so cool because you could do some real physicality, like pretending to swing a bat or bolt by a bowling ball. But after about 30 minutes, you could figure out how just to lie on your bed and just flick your wrist <laughs> in the right way. I bet the guy who came up with that bongo game for the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast had some amazing. No, the, okay, by the, the way. Dreamcast. Yeah, but that's we can talk about the Dreamcast. <laughs> and before we even get to any of the games, the guy who came up with that bongo game probably got the idea from the power pad because oh, he was playing track and field and trying to win at the hundred. And he's like, I'm like playing bongos. Hey, why don't I make a video game where you play bongos? <laughs> Didn't they, for the Wii, didn't they clone that? Because they had like Donkey Konga. Donkey Konga, yeah. 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 Actually, I want to announce a runner-up to the Virtual Boy and say the Power Glove. Yeah. Another one of those things that if it worked the way that you wanted it to, it would have been amazing. Okay, I still want to hear what Bob comes up with. (laughs) I'm going to say, what was the original question, though? Like, what did we want to work? No, what was your favorite failed accessory? Well, it's absolutely miserable, but the U-Force. Yes! Oh, my God. (laughs) It was basically an attempt to do the Wii 20 years before the Wii, but it didn't work at all. This is turning into a theme for me, but 10 bucks at KB. <laughs> and it was great. Wow. I, I never even saw it. It was that much of a failure. Like, I, I never even witnessed <laughs> its existence. I like finding weird things cheap. So many of these things that if they just worked the way that you they did in your head when you were in line at KB, yeah, that would have made your life this wonderful magical reality. And you just you you put it together, and it's just it's like a field of broken dreams. Yeah, unlike the Virtual Boy, the U Force just. I could never figure out what was going on. But the weird polka dancing you have to do to get it to do things. (laughs) The U-Force is a great pick. We're sort of centering around the mid-80s, early 90s uh, picks here. 
I want to push forward. So I think one of the things that a lot of people who might just be listening for nostalgia's sake is that despite the fact that Nintendo 64 really lost its grip, and this is before first-person shooters were even a real thing, GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64 was four-player on-screen multiplayer. I can't tell you how little uh, senior year of high school I actually went to because <laughs> most afternoons were spent playing four-player GoldenEye multiplayer. That game will be fondly remembered despite how awkward the controllers actually were. That was the worst controller ever. It required I... three hands. <laughs> <laughs> It was like a gun in the middle and then a controller on two sides. And it's like you had to be that helmsman from the animated Star Trek to use it. <laughs> God, I'm completely reversing and I'm going pro Nintendo anti-Sega here, but I'm sorry. The worst controller was the Dreamcast controller. It was pretty bad. Uh, it was yeah. horrible. You got to love being able to plug in a smaller controller as the memory card to play another game. When that you're... was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I like when they came out with an open source dev kit for the VMU. Nintendo basically ripped that off with GameCube, right? Yeah, Allowing yeah. you to plug your Game Boy Advance into the... But the Nintendo 64 controller, at least, it had the first analog stick that actually freaking worked. Yeah, I can say that that's the only game on the N64 I played. Goldeneye. Nothing but Goldeneye. And getting yelled at for playing Odd Job and trying to explain <laughs> that uh, I'm not uh, being cheap, I just like the character. <laughs> Slappers only. License to kill. <laughs> That was some good times. Despite that, I mean, it's interesting because with the rare exception of maybe Metroid Prime series, you don't think first-person shooter when no. you think about Nintendo at all. It's actually interesting, the N64. I bought it on the day Final Fantasy VII hit the video game store. Uh, so I went to the video game store, and they've got Final Fantasy on all the monitors, and I'm, my jaw is dropping. I'm like, wow, that looks awesome. I got to play that. And I'm like, and so what do you hear? Oh, I'd like a Nintendo 64 and Mario 64, please. <laughs> and they're like, you're freaking serious. I'm like, yes, I am. I would like that. I've been watching this video game at somebody else's house for months now. I want to buy it and I want to play it. Are you sure you don't want this? Yes. And you know what? At this late date and at this late age and looking back that far, I think that day I made the right choice. Really? Hmm. And Mario 64 is an amazing game, but I think an oft overlooked game for the N64 platform is Star Fox 64. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. I love that game. Certainly in the, the 90s, the late 90s and the 2000s, American development companies actually started to supplant Japanese development houses to making the video games that we were all playing. And the American audience sort of moved away from the kitschy weirdness that you would expect in an NES game or a Sega game or something and moved towards the games that featured a more Western sensibility, I guess you could say. I can't help but wonder if there's a silent prejudice towards games that are developed in Japan as being too creepy or just some kind of xenophobia that's in effect that we now as Americans don't really appreciate the weird quirk of Japanese games. I don't know if it's a xenophobia. Well, I'm a big fan of RPGs, and Final Fantasy games were the thing that really hooked me for a long time, and they were the thing that led me away from Nintendo. I lost the ability to play Final Fantasy games over the last few installments that they've put out, and a lot of it is that it became too real, and I think the thing that made Final Fantasy strong to me is it was just a group of little sprites that fought other little sprites, and that when they're oddly translated dialogue played out on the screen as text, I could take it and it's no big deal, but it wasn't people just acting a little off. They were all characters out of an M. Night Shyamalan movie all of a sudden. <laughs> it felt like Final Fantasy games on the later systems that had voice acting became the sort of game that I would be embarrassed if somebody walked in on me playing. <laughs> and I never felt that way playing, say, Skyrim. And of course, Skyrim, due to limitations, you hear the same voices over and over again. But at least they're speaking something that sounds like speech. <laughs> 
things that are happening that aren't necessarily as weird as the stuff that I enjoy, like a guy in a cloud throwing spiky things down on me or doing battle with things in my dream by throwing radishes at them. <laughs> Which I love. I love the shit out of those kinds of games, and I love the weirdness of the Mario system. But somewhere down the line, when it becomes too real, that stuff does become a little creepy. Rather than being a cartoon that's playing out in front of me, it becomes actors acting weird. (laughs) Anyone else? Are you afraid of the Japanese, Sam? (laughs) <laughs> yes, but that has nothing to do with video games. <laughs> They're buying all of our real estate. <laughs> I thought Sam was going to say ninjas. Ninjas, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was like, do I get creepy or just go with ninjas? I think when video games started to have to have more in-depth plots and started parallelizing with movies on some level, video games had to take up more of the cultural context. Mm. When we had 8-bit video games or we had 16-bit video games where you didn't have that much social palette to play with, there was a lot of the differences between markets wasn't very clear. And now Mm. that we have video games with casts, now these social differences become a lot more clear and our markets diverge a little bit. But I'm someone who, for the most part, modern video gaming just misses. I hate DLCs. Mm. In fact, that's part of the reason I haven't played Fallout yet, is I don't like the idea of having to buy more video game. Like, make another one. Do something new. That's okay. You just need to wait five years until after it's done. I'm okay with waiting five years. Platform jumpers. When you guys were playing Goldeneye, I was playing a PS1 game called Klonoa by Capcom, which was a 2D platform jumper rendered in 3D. Mm. They did one for that. They did one for the PS2. They did a 2D version for the GBA, and that was all she wrote, as far as I could tell. If I could make a mild defense of DLC, real quick okay if i could pay five dollars to fix a broken game i'd rather do that than buy a whole new game Remember when they would just release patches and not make you pay for them wasn't that nice i mean they do still release some free patches and stuff usually it's extra content you're paying for yeah most of the time but i remember a time when you bought street fighter 2 the world warriors on snes and then they wanted to add four playable characters and you had to pay 60 dollars again and then they wanted to add four new characters and you had to pay 60 dollars again for a separate cartridge i'd much rather pay five dollars to get those extra characters than have to buy a whole new game because i knew several friends who had four different snes versions of a fighting game and i was one of them i mean but that's in parallel with the business model of the arcades where they had to keep that three thousand dollar investment running so if they could slap in some more roms and keep it pumping out quarters every year they're gonna do it but like fallout and fallout new vegas like new vegas is practically just a new game on the same engine that i get what I don't get is, oh, let's say the Team Fortress 2 model. Here, give us 20 bucks and we'll give you sandwiches. Like, oh, fuck you. I don't know. I want to go to a video game store, buy a video game, and be entertained. I don't go to theaters anymore because theaters have become more about marketing than they have about entertainment. I have a nice TV at home. I can just watch movies at home. And I don't want to have to stop in the middle of my video game to have to buy more video game. Hmm. And that's what DLC models are doing. Your argument makes sense, but that's work. That requires effort on the part of companies to hire developers to do creative things. That's not what they want to do. They want you to pay 20 bucks to get a sharper sword. Or to spend less time to mine Vespine gas. (laughs) And that's the part that drives me away from video games. And that's why I'm spending so much time playing games like Minecraft and Papers, Please these Mm. days. Bob, do you have any thoughts on DLC? Uh, I thought we were talking about xenophobia, but uh, <laughs> uh, I have no problem with DLC as long as, I mean, it, it's not like a universal evil. I buy some of it for some games as long as it's, you know, substantial enough to merit 
price. So I, it's it's not always bad. We've come a long way since Force Armor, I think. That's how you talk about xenophobia. I think you're going to have more interesting things to say about xenophobia. Go ahead, Bob. I actually, I do see a little xenophobia. I don't think it's conscious, but I felt like Japanese games always have like a hurdle to go over as far as winning over an audience in America now. Like there's a certain kind of patronizing attitude I see a lot. Like, oh, this game's from Japan. Okay, they're weird. And I think that's why it took a long time for Demon Souls and Dark Souls to kind of catch on because they just assumed it was a bad game because it was made by a Japanese developer. At least that, that was my perspective. I, I saw Skyrim beat Dark Souls for like every RPG of the year award in 2011 and it really made me mad because Dark Souls is a, such a better game and I played both mm. and I felt like it was doing so much more interesting things and a lot of it was because you know it was a Japanese game and people would not take it seriously isn't that sort of inverted to what American developers used to say about developing for the 8-bit system though not to go tit for tat but I mean doesn't that just sort of play to the different markets have different requirements as far as what entertainment is different cultures have different ideas of entertainment I think so but I, I think the gradual decline of Japan as, as, as a presence in the gaming industry has led people to believe that they maybe earn that place or maybe the, the reason that they're not as notable is because they're not making as good of games that's not true it just they, there was a sort of like a, a fallow period where they had to kind of sort things out and get their shit together that's a real shame I guess my question to that would be how does the Metal Gear franchise continue to persevere in this market then I think it's now a very niche product. The last time it was relevant was really Metal Gear Solid 2, and that really scared the hell out of everyone. Okay. So from that point onward, it's been the creator trying to earn his trust back, but I feel like it's really diminishing returns. I know it sells well, but I feel like Metal Gear as a relevant media property is not as big as maybe the creator thinks it is. <laughs> well, I'm certain that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can empathize. I can Deanna Troy this a little bit here, and I can think about Final Fantasy and its sort of divergence into what is now now derisively called Final Corridor. Well, yeah. I mean, in that case of Final Fantasy, the games have just been getting bad. There's no prejudice or xenophobia. It's just like, they forgot how to make a game. (laughs) Everyone talented left. The same thing happened with Capcom, Konami, etc. Just like, when people leave, the bad people are left to make the games, and they don't know how to do that. I can say from experience coming from fighting games, certainly the resurgence of Street Fighter as one of the sole serious franchises for competitive tournament fighting games, it still endures, right? Oh, yeah. The audience still kind of loves how goofy and weird and absurd some of the characters actually are. (laughs) And it lives on where, you know, Mortal Kombat tried a reboot a couple years ago and it had a lackluster launch. But that's a case where even a more Japanese style game still has purchase. I wonder, too, if there's another thing. You mentioned Final Corridor, the idea that this was once a giant world that you could explore, and now you're just walking down a metal tube fighting random monsters. Maybe this is similar to what Nintendo's going through, which is that gaming is moving in a much more open world direction that we're talking about something like a Skyrim or Minecraft Kerbal Space Program, something that encourages the person to create something unique where every player has an individualized experience with this game and you almost tell stories about things that you saw and did and created. Nintendo is kind of pulling on nostalgia to these more closed linear games and bringing back platformers like New Super Mario Brothers. And it seems like they're moving in a much more comfort food direction rather than an open world Bethesda slash Rockstar direction. 
Well, I mean, I, I kind of feel like the era of the open world game is ending just because gaming needs to reach, you know, a broader audience to survive. And those games are becoming more and more difficult to create, especially as technology standards rise. So I feel like that's going to be a very, very specialized product in the future. We will see maybe like three or four of those per year by the expected people like Ubisoft and Rockstar and God, EA and Activision. But hmm. I feel like that is going to go out of favor in favor of things that are much easier to make. I'm kind of glad for that because it seems like the open world sandbox games are, are getting more and more cranio-rectally explorative, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, 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 definitely. But I had one last topic that I wanted to talk about because we briefly mentioned it. Shigeru Miyamoto is the man whose vision created the success of Donkey Kong. And without Donkey Kong, there is no Nintendo as we know it. I heard this quote a very long time ago, and I love the way that he articulates it. And I think this describes well the kind of world building and generally the type of feeling that Nintendo leaves behind. Shigeru Miyamoto said, What if everything that you see is more than what you see? The person next to you is a warrior, and the space that appears empty is the door to another world. What if something appears that shouldn't? You either dismiss it or accept that there is more to the world than you think. Perhaps it really is a doorway, and if you choose to go inside, you'll find many unexpected things. I said before that I thought Miyamoto was like the Rod Serling of video game designers. He's this singularly recognizable figure in a profession that most people don't really understand what it is. Yeah. Most gamers would be hard-pressed to name another game designer. I think, though, there's something to be said for that Miyamoto will be synonymous with Nintendo when the history books are written. And the great thing is, is that he's still alive and still making games. I think Rod Serling doesn't go quite far enough. Hmm. And I'm going to show my true fanboy colors here. And I think in 500 years, and I love history, so I, I tend to think in terms of what now is going to be history when I'm dead and gone. We think of him as Rod Serling now, but I think 500 years from now, we're going to talk about Shigeru Miyamoto the same way people talk about Michelangelo, the same way people talk about Mozart. This is a person who single-handedly redefined a dead medium. And showed people what art can look like in a way that was just universally accepted. I mean, my 80-year-old grandmother played Mario. I mean, universally accepted. This is the Brandenburg Concertos. This is Whistler's mother. This is a piece of art that will persevere throughout time. You're going to go into a museum 500 years from now, and behind glass, there will be a Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt cartridge, <laughs> which at one point I went to a Funko Land, and a guy offered me the entire shelf of Super Mario Duck Hunt cartridges, a full shelf for a dollar. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm an idiot. <laughs> but nobody's going to go to that museum and see an HU card of JJ and Jeff. <laughs> That is the impact of that guy. And just because they had that, Nintendo will not be forgotten hmm. because of that. And almost that alone. Wow, Mike, can you pick up what he just said? <laughs> I don't think I could top it, but I think that there is a cultural impact that was made by these games. The fact that we still have fond memories of things that we played 20, 30 years ago. And we have those experiences just so solidified in our brain, says something. While we were preparing downstairs for this panel, I was going through some of the music that I wanted to use on this episode. A little bit of the Mario 2 theme played, and Sam's wife Becky kept humming that for like 20 minutes. <laughs> because it came back to her. There's a flashback. You touch on something in the brain that fires something that you haven't accessed in years. It comes flooding back. I remember jumping on those logs on the waterfall. I remember pulling out that key in that other weird dimension you go to and that fucking terrifying mask thing chasing you. I practically had nightmares about that fucking thing because <laughs> it was scary because you had to get out of there with a the key really fast and go through that door. 
but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You remember these things so clearly, and this man gave us so many things. Resurrecting something that was dead. Basically, Jesus Christ. Yes. Come on. (laughs) I think we all need to sacrifice a goat right now. I'd totally show up as the army behind him on a horse with a sword in his mouth. Yeah, I'd totally do that. Just a couple weeks ago, we saw an excavation of a landfill that was only thought of as legendary. (laughs) That was the grave site of video games. Right. Before video games are resurrected by Nintendo. Lazarus. You pretty much have a headstone in the shape of an Atari 2600 (laughs) on that location. (laughs) To bring something back that was thought of as being that dead is a miracle. Hmm. It's amazing that somebody managed to bring back home consoles from that point. I look back on that, and the fact that we have home consoles at all is insane. And and he said he couldn't top that. Bob, can you can you heap more praise on this mountain of Miyamoto? Oh, sure. I mean, I do think it's a mistake to give him all the credit because history is more nuanced than that as much as we want to, you know, say, oh, this guy was the guy, so let's all love him. Nobody remembers him. the other guy who painted the Sistine Chapel, I guess, is part <laughs> of my point. Yeah. <laughs> but I do agree that quote that you read is very indicative of his kind of game design where when he started making games, you know, developers were all about punishing you for not doing things their way because they were all kind of uh, mathematicians and engineers, these guys who knew how to program. But Nintendo would hire toy makers and artists, people that were not necessarily computer types. Like, I'm not sure if Miyamoto knows how to write a line of code, for instance. That's an exaggeration, but that's not where his specialty is. It's in, you know, design and art and playfulness, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess that was sort of my point about the the Sistine Chapel is that all of these people we were talking about, as people history remembers, they all had people who worked for him. Like the guy who wrote all of that really memorable music is one guy, right? Yeah. Well, his name is escaping me for some reason. Koji Kondo. Thank you. Yes. But that's how history works. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, great. And with that, we're going to go to a break and be back with High Point, Low Point. And now it's time for our regular segment we call High Point, Low Point, and that's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. Bob, what is your low point for Nintendo? Well, I mean, we have talked about it before, but the uh, N64 definitely, it was a company at their most delusional where I believe the president, uh, I'm just paraphrasing, he was like, when they told him, you know, Final Fantasy VII is going to Sony, how do you think about that? He's like, no one plays RPGs. Those games are boring. (laughs) (laughs) They were just ignoring the truth, the reality of the situation. So they stuck with cartridges. They stuck with that awful format that would stand a profit for them, but affect the medium horribly. So that was probably their worst era. I mean, some of my favorite games came out of the N64, like Majora's Mask and Mario 64, Star Fox 64, things like that. But that system was just kind of dreadful. And everyone that had one was in deep denial along with the company. (laughs) I don't feel bad if you had one. I, I was lucky enough to be more informed and get a PlayStation and have lots of friends with N64. So I got to experience all the great games without, you know, buyer's remorse. Mike, low point? I think we might be living in the low point right now. I remember a time when Nintendo was king, and Nintendo isn't. I don't really know what's happening. It feels like the war is fighting on between Sony and Microsoft for the monarch of video games. For the Iron Throne. I get the impression that they're really kind of banking on nostalgia nowadays. Nintendo is really desperately holding on to these classic franchises that they own. I'm talking about Mario platformers or another version of Smash Brothers, another version of Mario Kart, another Mario Party type game, Zelda games, Metroid games. But it doesn't feel like they're really pushing ahead and leading the pack in the way that they were before. It feels like they exist almost entirely separate from the rest of the video game world. I'm going to allow Bob a rebuttal there because I have something to bone to pick. 
I was going to say just the console wars in general. I don't know if this is a smart idea, but I don't think they really want to be part of them because we hear about how successful, you know, Sony is. But if you look at all the things they've had to sell in the past few years just to stay afloat, the console business does not seem to be a business anyone wants to be in anymore. And just look at how many presidents that Microsoft has gone through and from their Xbox division. Like they really don't know what they want to do with this thing. It's just something that they started years ago that's always lost the money, but they have to keep doing it. They have to keep a momentum. So I feel like Nintendo does not want to be part of that because it's just like a money hole and they want to have cheaper solutions that are not like maybe as relevant but still profitable. I've got to say maybe Mike we're looking at it from a slightly solipsistic perspective because my nephews fucking loved Mario to death. (laughs) Between the two of them I think they probably got and played through and killed probably six DS's over the course of that console's lifespan and they moved directly from loving Mario to going to Minecraft. Neat. So I mean I think Nintendo is supremely relevant but just maybe not to us old fogies. Sam, low point for Nintendo. Well, I was originally going to say the Wii U because it's basically somebody glued an Android tablet to a Wii. It is the definition of not trying that hard. But I'm going to get personal on this one. I would call Nintendo's lowest point Mike Tyson's conviction for sexual assault. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Because imagine being that company on that day. Because... Mike Tyson's Punch-Out is the most popular boxing game. I think that was maybe like three or four years after Punch-Out came out. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. But it was such a fun game. We were all still playing yeah, it and going but, like, no, yeah, I yeah. really want to win. Mike Tyson was a personal experience. I had a personal relationship with Mike Tyson. <laughs> I loved that game. I played well, the that. Well, that ended with it. you getting the shit beat out of you over and over and over of again. Of course. And then, As it does. And then it happens <laughs> in real life and you get this sort of icky feeling in the pit of your stomach and that icky feeling in the collective pits of video gamers and nintendo corporation stomach had to have been a particularly low point yeah they had always been or at least had marketed themselves as or maybe we just projected this on them yeah the more family-friendly video game company yeah and suddenly the last boss of your video game is a rapist yeah (laughs) i mean bowser never did shit like that (laughs) we assume he did well yeah don't look that up the thing is not like now Mike Tyson is cool. He's been in the hangover. He's popping up in comedies and stuff. Like I think Nintendo could just put him back in the game, but they would have to spend money. Yeah. It's not gonna happen. For my low point, I gotta piggyback on what Mike said. It's hard for me to say anything other than right now, both from a personal point of view of not wanting a Wii U, because everything that I want out of a gaming system is on my PC. And almost nothing, save for Red Dead Redemption, which is the only game that I ever really wanted to play that I could not play on the PC. So I bought a used 360 to play it, is on the PC. Specifically, I mean, I thought the Wii U tablet controller was a gimmicky cash-in. And I, I still think tablet and mobile gaming is bullshit. And that I've tried to play with your thumb over the screen, the fat thumbs that I have and you're covering a quarter of the screen with your thumbs, it's very difficult to make a game with lush graphics to do that. I think it's garbage, and I think that it'll eventually go in a different way. We'll we'll still have touchscreens. But what really makes it the low point for me is that it tears me up that not just for nostalgia purposes, but it's possible that through mismanagement, Nintendo could not be around anymore. And especially when I hear Satoru Iwata, the president of Nintendo, coming out and saying, they don't want to be known as a video game company. They want to be known as an entertainment company, and they should, quote, move beyond games. This is the fucking bullshit that you saw prior to the Xbox One launch, where they said the word TV more than they did video games, because everyone's falling all over themselves to make the bells and whistles filled set-top box, and gaming is just a side gig. Yeah, I don't want Nintendo to go down that road. <laughs> I don't want the pressures of a publicly traded company and needing to make the profit over next quarter to make 
make them completely ditch video gaming and saying, oh, no, we're an entertainment company and we're going to finance movies and we're going to finance television shows and we're going to have our own video streaming service. I don't want them to do that. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a video game hardware company that thought video games was a thing worth doing? (laughs) We've seen companies do this. A really good example is Vince McMahon's WWF has tried over the years to be more than a wrestling company. They tried to do a bodybuilding league, and then they tried to do a football league in the late 90s, early 2000s. (laughs) You already know how that goes, because the words XFL are synonymous with failure. Yeah, believe it or not, I think those movies make a lot of money. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god yeah and it's not like nintendo hasn't branched out into movies i don't know if they were responsible for the wizard starring fred savage <laughs> oh no 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 <laughs> but it felt like a commercial for them i think we need to talk about the wizard because <laughs> it felt like one of those things where this company couldn't fail it overcame the fucking wizard which was essentially rain man starring children set against the backdrop of a nintendo commercial where they stop every three minutes to show you footage of various games and suddenly Bo bridges and christian slater are saying oh hey what are you playing i'm playing teenage mutant ninja turtles get a shot of the screen dad (laughs) they basically do full-on advertisements for both the power glove and super mario brothers 3 which they treat like it's from the fucking future because at that point it still was that was a company that was on top of the world that could get away with that. And you know we all bought fucking tickets to that movie yeah. to see those video games. But I think that was the era of children's entertainment where most of it was commercials. Yeah. All the cartoons were commercials. All the movies were commercials. We were always being advertised to until government regulations stopped that from happening <laughs> as much. <laughs> the big government coming to crush our freedom. Yeah, and that was in Reagan era America, if you believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move quickly on to High Point for Nintendo. Bob, High Point? I would say, I'm not sure if this is cheating, but I'd say maybe like 1988 to 1992, at least in terms of game design. I feel like Ah, so many amazing games came out in that time period that sort of defined genres, defined like the rules of gaming. Things like Mario 3, uh, Link to the Past, Super Mario World. Yeah, they were on top of everything in terms of game design in that late NES, early SNES period. Mike? I'm going to say basically the same era. Everything from the dominance of the NES to the dominance of the SNES. They fucking ruled America. Not just video games, America. Remember how excited you got when you watched Ghostbusters 2 and Egon brought out that SNES controller with the joystick? That was the only good joke. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that that appearing also, in the how movie. did that work? I don't, I don't know. I don't, there are no moving parts of the Statue of Liberty! You no. can't. Like there's no controller port in its head, you know. <laughs> I've never been there. I just assume. I just assume there's not. Well, when you have the magical MacGuffin semen, <laughs> oh yeah, to spoo on the inside of the yeah, everything works. So Suddenly, it's not a solid piece. <laughs> it's got joints. But that's what I'm talking about. Is there was a time that everyone referenced Nintendo. There was not a failure that could stifle that momentum. The Wizard was a terrible movie. It didn't stop them. The power glove didn't work. It didn't stop them. The virtual boy required you to sit in a hammock and put it on your head. It didn't work. And they didn't stop their momentum. They ruled America. There's nothing that they could put out. They could put out a turd, 
put a piece of parsley next to it out and give it to you and you would thank them. You're like, oh my God, thank you, Nintendo. And Believe you were, it or not, I think that was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and you loved it so much that you would find yourself making excuses for it like an abusive spouse. <laughs> no, no, no. They were just, you know, it didn't work in that way. I mean, we look back on a lot of these things now and we laugh at the fact that we cheated at that trackpad, but... There was a time when Nintendo was everywhere. The Super Mario Brothers movie, which again was terrible, but we all went to see it. We all paid. Oh, actually, we didn't. We got our parents to pay for tickets to <laughs> yeah, that terrible yeah. movie. I did see the Super Mario Brothers one. I did see that one. They actually did Dark City before Dark City. Yeah. <laughs> Except it had Goombas in it. They ruled the world. There was a time they were completely unstoppable. You knew that before Sega put out a system, that Nintendo had already beaten it with a system that was two systems ahead. <laughs> there was a time they were just virtually unstoppable. That is the high point of Nintendo. The fact that they were synonymous with video games. They were synonymous with fun. They were a shared experience that everybody had. There was no comparison to that. There are no brand names that match up to Nintendo short of like Coca-Cola or Harley Davidson. Right. This is something people will tattoo on themselves. <laughs> Corporate logos and characters and icons. People still do that. There's a love for this stuff. There's that immediate callback to things that you remember. So for me, that dominance through the console wars in the 80s and the early 90s, that is the high point of Nintendo. Sam, high point. Well, I did not see The Wizard. And I, I still haven't. Movie night! <laughs> yeah. My introduction to the Power Glove was that horrible Flash, the TV show, The Flash, on CBS yeah. in, the early, in the early mid-90s. They had this guy who could control The Flash, and it was basically a, a gussied up <laughs> power glove. And I'm like, that's a power glove. And that's the first time it's ever that. worked. And it's the first time it's ever worked. I did see the Super Mario Brothers movie, and that, I think it gets a bad rap. But then again, I like bad movies. And the, the power pad, actually, when you're a sixth grader, makes a great sleeping pad. <laughs> <laughs> For camping, huh? For me, the, the personal, I, I kind of have two. I really tried to pick one. I, you know, the timing one makes sense. The, the total market dominance and the almost deserved market dominance, in a way, almost works. But everybody wanted to go see The Wizard for Super Mario 3. I didn't have to. I had a neighbor who ordered it from Japan with the adapter. Mm. That is insane, yeah. We played the hell out of that. It was a transformative experience for me. I still get confused when I play Super Mario 3 and the princess is talking in English. Like, I, like what? Mm. I don't get it anymore. It was my birthday party, and we were hanging out in, in my living room, and it was a sleepover party, and we had the option of surreptitiously watching the Playboy channel. <laughs> Or playing Super Mario 3, and we fucking chose Mario 3. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because that was way more interesting. You can look at boobs whenever. This is Mario 3, fuckers. <laughs> that was really it for me. But I guess in modern times, chiptunes. The fact that oh. people are using technology, the fact that they're using quirks of the sound chips in the NES to make noises that not even you know synthesized instruments really make... And the social interaction thereof of, of technology and the fact that this technology is being treated in the same way that people treat tube amps and old strats. Right. And, and I, I think there's something amazing is about to happen there. And I think that's also a high point that we should pay attention to. Very nice, because you said something unique, because unfortunately I said the Super Nintendo, which is piggybacking on Mike and Bob. I argue that the SNES was Nintendo at its peak, just like you said. They dominated the console market. The system had graphics to rival some of the PC games of the day. And they were also powerful enough to faithfully port arcade games. There was a point in time when you could go down and play NBA Jam in the arcade, or you could play an incredibly faithful port of NBA Jam on your Super Nintendo at the same time. 
it's just crazy that the president of Nintendo at the time, Yamauchi, had to be convinced for years, years to make the SNES. And when it did, luckily they waited long enough so that it made sense for them to do it. Just the legacy of the gameplay innovation, Mario World, Link to the Past, Super Metroid, and the introduction of 3D and 3D-like elements into their games changed everything thereafter. And of course, things like Earthbound and Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy III, those are timeless. Those you can still play to this day. They couldn't be stopped. And it's just unfortunate that at that time, their time ran out when in 1994 and Sony completely rose up. But for that brief shining moment, they were at their pinnacle. They were the crab nebula in the sky, the brightest star in the sky. And with that, it looks like the timer has reached zero. Automatic death occurs. I'd like to thank <laughs> my very special guest, Bob Mackey. Thanks, Bob. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. And Sam Mulvey, you've been through Crossing of the Desert and the Unblinking Eye. Next up is the Paddling of the Swollen Ass with Paddles. <laughs> How do you feel now that you're in the cult of Miyamoto? I have <laughs> consumed the Kool-Aid <laughs> and have seen the purple light. <laughs> very nice. And Mike Gillis, thanks again. Thanks very much and see you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Yeah, well, uh, just keep your power gloves off her, pal, huh?